we're brewing beer now. <gasps> For real? Yeah. Oh my lord. <laughs> okay. No, it started a uh, started this weekend. It's living uh, in our guest bathtub <laughs> in, in five gallon buckets to ferment. What is it? It's an amber. <gasps> okay. Okay. It's good. I I'm debating. You'll have to help me. So, uh, anticline amber. Anticline anti- amber. Yeah. Antipodal amber. Ooh. Ooh. Uh, I think that more people will be familiar with anticline than antipode, although I will say that that's my vote, is antipodal amber. But I think I it, would, it would have to be like the third or fourth beer in a series, you know what I mean? Fair, yeah. To, to, to get that name. Though, and of course, while while the mash uh, was, was boiling, I... <laughs> I got a photo gate, and you know those little airlocks that bubble the CO2 out? Uh-huh. So I put a photo gate across uh, that and uh, used an uh, Arduino uh, and an SD card and a screen, uh, and we're we're logging our bubbles per minute now. Oh, my God. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> so I uh, was talking with a, with a friend, and he said, what are you going to do with that data? And I said, I don't know. Maybe we'll put it on the beer label. Like, you know, here's the here's the log log plot of yeast activity in this beer. Uh, and he was like, you have an opportunity to make the first beer that comes with a data sheet. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. <clears throat> That's so I'm already amazing. thinking of ways for the next batch that we're, we're going to measure uh, specific gravity, pH, temperature. <sighs> Every beer would start to do this now, though. Every brewer. Because, you know. They've got to have these. There's got to be super nerdy brewers that have this data as well. I'm talking to yeah, you, but, Jeremy Jaren, again, if you're listening, this engineering dude on our hallway. <laughs> but, you know, I just, this is, uh, I can already tell this is a dangerous hole because yeah. I'm going to end up losing my parking spot to this <laughs> in the garage. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> I've already been looking up. There's all these fun things you can do with heat exchangers to to more quickly cool it and all these control systems. Like, oh, this could be a really fun project. The, this, uh, this smells like an extension on your uh, shop. <laughs> well, I mean, we've already decided it's going to be called uh, Pangea Brewing Company. Right. Mm-hmm. Yep, I remembered that. See, that's why. And I've already bought the domain name, people, so don't try it. <laughs> Of course you have. And this was ages ago. This was like right after you got it, right? That you bought that? Yeah, I bought that domain name in December. Right. <laughs> you <laughs> opened the present and immediately turned and registered. <laughs> yep. Yeah, that's why I like Anapodal. Well, you know there's a Pangea A and a Pangea B, so keep that in mind, too. Well, we had a long discussion via text message on how you spell Pangea because there are two accepted ways. Oh, yeah. I like Pangea. <laughs> Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's like if you're a paleomagnetist in Europe versus here, same thing. Yeah. It's, you know, just spelled differently. So, mm-hmm. how are you going to do it? Are you going to do it with a weird A? No, because nobody could go to the website then. Oh, good call. Good call. Yeah. I no, mean, part I- of me wants to do that, but also. I already have one domain name that I have to spell, which has the word geophysical in it. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, geopsychical? No, okay. <laughs> Sorry, physics, psychic always gets confused. 
<laughs> my, my trash bill still comes to Lehman Geo Forsicle. <laughs> I've tried to get it changed multiple times. Forsicle. <laughs> That's amazing. Hey, what was whoever was inputting that? Like, what the heck do they sell? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Forsicle. I love it. Uh, okay well let's talk about some uh some rocks <laughs> so three um, two one Ninety percent of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today that's a lot of information but don't panic it's not an exact science hey shannon how are you I don't know, man. <laughs> I mean, come on. It's We're only recording this after the first day of field camp. Exactly. Online field camp. It was a lovely day. We only met for like two hours and, you know, went over the logistics and I said, go forth and do all these assessments because everyone wants to assess these poor students that are in virtual field camps this summer. <laughs> Yes, they will be the subject of many papers. Oh, that's what I said. I was like, I'm sorry. This is the first one of many. I'm so sorry. (laughs) So, yeah. So, uh, have your UPS boxes of gnats that they're required to release into their apartment (laughs) and all the other critters from the field, have those arrived yet? cacti (laughs) attached to them. And I won't tell them it's in it. I'll just have them stick their hand in and get get got by the choya. Exactly. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, we've discussed that. And no drinking water at all. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, yeah, keep your heat turned up to a balmy 90 degrees. <laughs> that ought to do it. Yeah, exactly. Um, I did actually write the sentence <laughs> into the syllabus. While this is not as physically challenging, parenthesis, <laughs> don't kid yourself, that office chair is going to get pretty uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah so very nice yeah yeah (laughs) i mean it's true there's no excuse for bad ergonomics it's it's true in fact i'm sitting up right now on my stool a little bit more yeah yeah me too (laughs) i actually had to adjust the microphone since i set up (laughs) um yeah this is gonna be terrible but um i'm gonna do my best so we'll see so, you know, when the summers, when you go to field camp and are recording from the back of an SUV, <laughs> uh, that is what traditionally has made us start the summer shorts series. So are we going to do summer shorts this summer? You know, I say we go for it, right? I'm literally eight hours ahead of the students in terms of preparing their <laughs> their assignments. So let's keep with it, right? All right. Well, our summer shorts also traditionally, long-time <laughs> listeners know, aren't actually any shorter. I know. <laughs> I'm already worried about this one. <laughs> yeah, me too. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> because it, it's it's your favorite game. It is. Da-da-da. Impact crater or cryptovolcanic structure. <laughs> Come on down. <laughs> um, so in this case, it's not actually a cryptovolcanic structure. Um, but I thought that we would travel because all i've been doing is traveling virtually to upheaval dome and guess what it's an impact crater or it's salt tectonics no one knows 
and I have hiked all around this sucker. Ah, uh, it's so cool. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So upheaval dome. The, now this is I will say, and there's a link to this in the show notes. Um, I saw this on the virtual field trip website that Arizona State University has, and so they had this upheaval dome one, and I thought that's cool. That's one of my favorite places because it's in Canyonlands, which. If we remember back to our National Park show, that one's my favorite. And so it's this weird, and I also have this geologic map. It's like six foot by four foot up on my office wall as well. (laughs) Um, So Upheaval Dome is this weird dome. It's this five kilometer circular structure within Canyonlands National Park. It's super easy to get to in terms of hiking up to it, hiking all around it, a little bit hotter. Um, right. Yeah, but it's this weird structure, and it's just all messed up in the middle, right? Which is a little bit different than the super flatline rocks all around you. Right. And I really do encourage you, if you're listening to this and not driving, to go check this thing out on Google Earth, Google Image Search. Mm-hmm. Just go take a look. This is some really messed up rock. Right. And... I mean, Canyonlands and everything, not everything on the Colorado Plateau, but a large portion of that is just this really flat line. We call it layer cake geology. So it sticks out even more. I mean, especially on the um, on my huge geologic map. It looks really pretty on the geologic map. It's made up of Mesozoic rocks, which the USGS has specific color codes for different ages of rocks. And so I really like, gosh, my girl's going to show here. Um, <laughs> I really love this map because it's all these pretty purples and greens and yellows. <laughs> um, because those are the Mesozoic and Quaternary colors. So, <laughs> right. but, it, but it's this cool little structure. I say it's, it's little on my map, but it's five kilometers across, um, which it doesn't seem like it's that big. When I think about having visited it, it doesn't seem like it's that much larger than Meteor Crater, but it is. <laughs> Yeah, Uh, yeah, because Meteor Crater is what a pretty much dead on a kilometer, I think. Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah, it sure is. So, so this is pretty big. Um, But these target rocks, I'm going to call them that, but maybe they're not. The deformed rocks, just like I said, they're all Mesozoic, Um, and this is just the, this is the canvas of this part of Utah and everything. Um, And so just to talk about what the rocks that are involved. So underneath it all is the Permian White Rim Sandstone. Um, one of the interesting things about that rock is that it has clastic dikes that are intruded into it from the above rocks by whatever caused upheaval dome. Which this is right up your research alley anyway. It sure is. <laughs> so much of it. Clastic dikes, meteorites. It's so exciting. Um, <laughs> and then it's overlain by this Triassic series. Um, the Moenkopi Silt Shale, the Shinli, the Wingate Sandstone. These are all of the um, e- Aeolian sands and, you know, river floodplain-ish deposits. Um Overlaid by the Jurassic rocks, the Kayenta, uh Shale sandstone, and the Navajo sandstone. So, those are the beautiful colors on the um, on the geologic map, and those are the rocks that are involved in the deformation in this weird little feature. Right, and it's very, you know, like the Navajo is just this dark, dark red, gorgeous, 
sandstone. And a lot of these are really pretty when they're put together out there. Oh, oh, yeah. They're just gorgeous. There's desert varnish all over them, which is really cool. You'll see the petroglyphs chipped into that. Uh, these massive, because the Wingate uh, and the Navajo are Eolian sandstones. So they've got these huge cross beds that are just, oh, these are my favorite rocks. I love them. I did a whole lecture on the Shinley Earth history. It was probably too much, but. <laughs> probably. <laughs> okay, it was half a lecture, but still. Um, lots of things lived during that time period. You got the petrified forest is in all this stuff. Anyway, beautiful rocks. If you've never been, you should absolutely go on Google Earth Web or on this virtual field trip and um, go check it out. But that being said, everything's pretty flat out there. It's this layer cake geology. And so, of course, what are we drawn to? Because we're basically just chimpanzees is that there's this weird thing that's different so what is it and it turns out we still don't know what it is which is real exciting yeah because if you look at it structurally you say okay we've got ring-shaped faults uh all around this thing Mm -hmm. there's evidence that there was some central uplift Mm -hmm. and then you know erosion has modified that um but man, that sure sounds like an impact crater. Yeah, it sure does. I'll reference you back to all of our episodes about impact craters, though. <laughs> and there's a reason that there's a whole game called Impact Crater Cryptovolcanic Structure, which is while all those things do fit the definition of an impact crater, they also fit the definition of things you would see around active salt. And the tectonics associated with the movement of salt. So, which one is it? (laughs) Yeah, and if you remember, salt is a really low-density material. So, over geologic time, it flows and it displaces the rock around it. And, you know, if you could imagine a bubble rising through water, that's sort of what salt does, except... In this case, it's a solid rising up and displacing another solid. But you get exactly this. You get ring-shaped features because you have this bubble of salt that's rising. Uh, You get lots of faulting. You get uplift because you're displacing things upward. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's pretty similar. Yeah, it really is. And so what's really interesting about this comes down to that. So keep that bubble part in your mind um, that we talk about the meteorite hypothesis first and the fact that most people think it is a crater and i think that's interesting i think that's an interesting piece of psychology that we'll discuss here once we've presented all the the data um (laughs) well so i mean do you think you could think about this in an interesting way here slow down or yeah slow down the meteorite impact in time Uh uh-huh yeah Uh uh-huh and speed up the salt dome in time and flip it I mean, right. they're actually very similar physical processes, right? Right, it's, exactly. It's a dissimilar material impacting and displacing another material. Mm-hmm. Right, exactly. That's, it's kind of, it's shocking how similar they are. And, I mean, really, once you do this erosion and geologic time passes, uh, a lot of the difference that was there, which was subtle, is erased. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And so either way, um, I read this thing about it that said, you know, either way, meteorite or salt tectonics, it's deeply eroded. And so you've erased so much 
of the potential smoking guns for either one of those, that that's why we're stuck with, yeah, we really don't know. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. So it's it's an interesting physical... I mean, it's it's literally a physical mechanic sort of problem, right? Yeah, this thing that's going to happen instantaneously because it would have gone into this wet, slurry stuff, and it's like we would have had this transient crater and collapse, and it looks similar to that, which is the same thing you'd see at the base of a salt diapir situation. So, yeah, just different time frames. Yeah. Hmm. So... Uh... This would have to be, let's say it were an impact. Mm-hmm. This is a sizable one. Correct. Yeah. So we're looking at a pretty big bolide here. Right. Um, and that would make a complex crater. So anything, meteor crater is a simple crater. It's a hole. It's tiny. Anything bigger than meteor crater um, is going to be a complex crater, which means that you're going to have this central uplift form and potentially form and reform depending on what your your uh, target rock is and then you can have um rings of deformation again depending on how large a crater is um that sort of come out from that just like freezing the water falling a water drop you know falling into water it's freezing those little structures because it's rock it's not water Right. Um, so you have a lot of deformation in the bottom of that thing. And they think that if it was a meteor, the bolide would be 100 meters in diameter, traveling at 10 kilometers per second. So it's not screaming, but still. It's no, big. but that's the size of a decently large warehouse. Right. Exactly. That you're going to throw into the ground. Right. <laughs> at 10 <laughs> kilometers a second. So... E- if you do get that, this is one difference is we would expect a lot of expect a lot of shock features with an impact, especially of that size and salt, well, not so much. Right. And these are always those, if you'll remember back to our shows before, like there are very few smoking guns for impact craters. Like you can put all this stuff together, but the thing you want are these indexed quartz, shocked quartz and shatter cones, essentially. And so most of this stuff is siltstones and sandstones, which isn't really the best thing to create shatter cones in. Um, there have been reports of some planar deformation features in quartz, and we call those PDFs. They're not called shocked quartz until you actually index them along their crystal facies or whatever. Um, but there were some shocked grains of quartz they found within the Kayenta sandstone. And so that's that Jurassic sand, Eolian sand that's in there. And this is from an abstract in 2008. And they said proof that Opeval Dome is an impact crater. But, you know, I... <laughs> there's proof a Proof is in the eye of the publisher. Correct. And there's a lot of fights about things that are just planar deformation features in quartz and things that are truly like indexed shocked quartz and i think the jury's still out although this is a smoking gun as we get because there's some possible shatter cones nearby um but it's not within the structure i think they've just randomly been found near the structure like i said this these quartz rich 
target rocks aren't the best thing to make shatter cones out of. But this seems like a situation for dun da 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 geophysics. <laughs> because the surface is all messed up, but if this was an impact, it's going to have, even though this thing is eroded, it's going to have very, very deep structure. And that deeper structure would be a lot more indicative of whether the impact came from above or salt rising from below. See, I think that this is, so there has been some seismic of this stuff. Um, the story that I read was Gene Shoemaker, who is, you know, famous for Behringer Crater or Meteor Crater in Arizona. And he said him and his wife, both excellent geoscientists, he showed up there and said, oh, yeah, it's an impact, basically because of the types of faults that they saw. And they did a lot of mapping. And because of the structures of the faults, he said that, you know, this is absolutely what you would see in an impact crater. And then later on, so a decade later, uh, they did more mapping and then they did seismic. And I guess I didn't see the seismic. It just said that this reflectivity survey suggested the geometry of the beds were consistent with an impact structure. But I think the point is like, it's so heavily eroded. So the impact structure would have to be younger than 170 million years, basically just because of the age of the beds that are involved in the deformation. Um, and it's so deeply eroded that beneath it, there's not like a ton that gives it away because you're at the very bottom. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, it, it'd be interesting to actually see some of that and yes. also to talk to a geochemist that could tell us more about what we don't know about how geochemistry could help here. Uh, right, exactly. So it's like they thought that geophysics was the answer, but as usual, it wasn't. <laughs> oh, my. Yep. Uh, send your hate mail to John. Um, and But it is because of how deep it is. So whether it's a salt structure or this meteor impact it's so deep it it you can't answer it ridiculous right <laughs> yeah okay so so there's there's one story but what's the salt story look like is it as convincing man i'm convinced even though well okay we'll get to this <laughs> so if you've ever studied this area you know you're fairly close to the paradox basin which is a huge salt tectonic province right there's all kinds of oil and gas stuff it's all related to all this old salt um that created uh, all these different compartmentalized pockets that people drill for oil like we do this in the gulf of mexico today we do this with this ancient salt stuff um and so the salt tectonics line up with that same age okay so if that's the deformation ages that's fine uh we're real close to the paradox basin super famously cored by salt, very structurally active because of all these salt tectonics. And so what I saw was this video and the structural geologist had a list of features and he had can be explained by salt, can be explained by meteorite, right? And he's on the salt side because he says all the mapping and everything that's been done and these ring faults and everything else can be explained by movement of a salt diapir. But it's not like if you're imagining that bubble coming up. So instead of in water, like imagine a air bubble in syrup. And it comes up 
and it's shaped, you know, like a hot air balloon, right? But also there's like a little triangular piece at the bottom and eventually that air bubble like breaks off and that little hot air balloon thing keeps rising, but you've got this weird little triangle shape where it broke off from. Right, and it's something about the the fluid dynamics and turbulence and instability and eventually that that tail becomes unstable and separates. Right, correct. So you've got separation of that. It pinches pinches off. So the same thing could happen with salt. And the reason that people didn't initially think this was could be explained by salt is because all the deformation in the middle of upheaval dome is compressional. And they're like, well, if you've got a salt die up here, all the ring faults and all the stuff that happens on top of that bubble is all extensional. Because you're pushing up through it, so all the rocks are reacting, you know, in an extensional matter. You get normal faulting, and you get, you know, pull-apart stuff. Uh, you don't get compressional stuff. But if you're not looking at the the bubble part of the die up here, if you're looking down there at that little triangle, well, actually, you do get compression there as that salt diapir bubble breaks off from the rest of the salt body. Okay. So... They think that you're looking at that exact sort of little triangle of compressional deformation where this salt bubble basically detached from the lower salt body. And now the salt bubble and everything associated with that has all been eroded away. And you're looking at that triangle there at the base, and that's all the compressional deformation associated with the movement of that salt. Hmm. Yeah. Um, so that seems like a relatively convincing argument as well it did and the thing that got me is that in the sedimentary units and this is the one that i am struggling with rectifying with the meteor hypothesis which i need to read a little bit more about is the fact that there are a lot of thickening and thinning of these layers that's occurring and that means stuff like the deformation of some of these layers was syndepositional. So you have movement of these not consolidated, so not lithified rocks yet, and they're moving around while deposition is occurring. Yeah, and that's <laughs> that's not what you're going to see at all. With How impact. are you going to do that in an impact? <laughs> Because you're just going to obliterate everything. And so there are these, and the fact is, these aren't like huge, huge thickening and thinnings. Like in the Gulf of Mexico, you'll see these massive like growth faults, right? Where your sedimentary packages are hundreds of feet thick on one side. And as your fault is moving, it makes more accommodation space. And it's thousands of feet thick on the other side. Okay. Um, So it's not like that large scale but there are some things that look like those sort of relationships so on lapping of sedimentary layers that would happen as you're making more accommodation space maybe as the salt moves around underneath them and so that was the part that i thought hmm um and so the syndepositional folding it actually it could have preceded the impact because these layers are some of the said layers that this is happening in are much older than the Mesozoic stuff. So, I mean, I don't know. Yeah. Hmm. Uh huh. <laughs> yeah. So they have seismic on not 
on this area, but they have seismic on these pinch out little salt bubbles where this happens. And it looks, I mean, you can't tell because salt looks like, you know, trash in seismic, right? <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> so you can't tell right around the salt, um, but you can see some of the faulting. And so as that pinched out salt bubble goes up, you can see compressional structures and ring faulting type stuff around that little salt triangle that's left behind that the diapir broke off of. So they say, we see this in active salt provinces today. This looks like what a people dome could be. If it was, it's the deepest, oldest salt core of a diapir that we have. So I don't know. It's still an active argument. Um, that sin depositional deformation stuff really makes me makes me wonder. But also I wonder, why aren't there any brushes? Because if you're in the deepest part of the impact, I would think you'd see some brushiation. Yeah, you would think. And, I mean, it is pretty messed up rock, but you're right. There's not really mixing. Right. And it's like, that's exactly where you would expect to find it, is right in that in the core of the impact is you get those, I mean, not even like melt brushes, but just that's where you get. And if it's a transient crater that's then been collapsed even more so, you would think that you would get that. But I guess maybe they think it's even deeper than that, right? Because it is a dome. So maybe it's eroded all the brush away. I don't know. I don't know either. That's, uh, this seems like it would be a really interesting place to have a targeted field campaign. Is that a, is that a meteorite joke? <laughs> uh, no, but it can be. <laughs> um, oh, yeah, I'd love to drill this. Uh, <laughs> so It would be a, a buoyant... Nah, try, trying to come up with something for salt. Uh, <laughs> but no, it'd be, it'd be a great core. It would be great to do geophysics great to do deep earth geophysics on yeah, uh, like so real low frequency radar i got on the earth impact database obviously to look it up and it says it has been cored but i don't know anything about that um i'd like to look at it i do know that the plaque that's right there basically says this is an impact crater maybe it's not but it probably is <laughs> and the only thing i could think is right. like people just love impacts more than salt domes like salt domes aren't exciting right it's super well, slow <laughs> come see our impact crater is a much better marketing than come see our salt dome oh, right exactly oh it's not even a salt dome anymore it's just you know the left behind trailings so <laughs> right uh yeah exactly so i don't know if that's if that's why um i find this interesting because you know when you do these uh maybe people don't know when you do reviews of proposals through NSF, they make you watch these videos. They want you to watch them. They can't make you do anything. <laughs> and one of the things that I love that they talk about is like this, all this implicit bias that you have. And the one thing they say is like, just because like you recognize someone's name as being, you know, a leader in the field doesn't mean that this is a good idea. <laughs> And so Absolutely. it's like it's like that genius <laughs> bias. I don't know. There's a name for it um, because this is proven that, you know, once you get a lot of funding 
and stuff, you just get even more funding and you just keep getting funded. Like no matter what, you can throw out the dumbest stuff and you're going to get funded for it because you've made a name for yourself. And yeah, I, I don't know if that's the case with this because Gene Shoemaker dubbed it an impact that now it's an impact. <laughs> yeah. And you know, it's interesting you talk about that, that expert bias or whatever you want to call it, because uh, on a recent episode of embedded, uh, when they were talking to Chris Feck, uh, he was talking about being at a, a lunch paper discussion uh, where the author of mythical man month uh, showed up the very mm-hmm. famous book in software engineering and management. And the thing that impacted him really most about this guy was that though he was a highly regarded expert, he was very willing to say, I don't know. My area of expertise is really X and Y. And I don't know. Instead of being one of those experts that, well, I am clearly somebody that is highly knowledged and I'm never going to say, I don't know. I know about everything. Oh, that's so refreshing. (laughs) so refreshing i try to say that kind of stuff all the time not that i'm an expert like (laughs) like that but just so somebody sees somebody like i am a professor and it'd be really nice you know to have remembered i remember when professors would say that i don't know but i'm gonna find out for you as opposed to making some junk up oh my gosh yeah Mm -hmm. so i absolutely I don't know if that's it. It's really interesting to me. I'm definitely, I mean, I knew there was some question about what it was. I actually did think it was, the question was, it was a volcano or, or that, or a meteorite impact, not salt tectonics. But when you say salt tectonics and you look at where it is in the world, it's like, oh yeah, well that makes perfect sense. So. mm -mm. Well, whenever we can go places again, maybe we should have a field trip, but uh, you can (laughs) visit it virtually now. Right. You should absolutely go to this uh, website. You know, it's just vft.asu.edu. And there's a whole list of all their different uh, virtual field trips. Um, My kid did the rainforest one. He's real excited about it. (laughs) I'm definitely going to have my field camp kids do some of these. Students, sorry. um, Do some of these as well. Um, It was really neat. I quite enjoyed it. Um, And plus, when you're sitting there looking at their 360-degree sphere photos, they have like little crickets and stuff and little bird songs <laughs> it was quite uh, relaxing nice <laughs> yeah um so up people down go check it out all right well without further ado it's time for fun paper friday <laughs> yay is that your little mini cowbell yeah, no, that is the uh, that's the John Deere lunch cowbell that we have at the office. Oh my gosh! Uh, because I am actually podcasting from the office for the first time tonight. <laughs> oh, that's great. Um, I'm not gonna lie. This might have been one of the most enjoyable <laughs> fun papers. I feel like we've done. <laughs> so, space activism, space hippies, <laughs> space hippies. Uh, all of this is addressed in Set E, The Search for Extraterrestrial Environmentalism by Montet and Loomis. <laughs> <laughs> and so this is uh, a 2016 paper where they uh, make an interesting modification to the Drake equation. 
<laughs> which is we're looking for the number of planets experiencing a green revolution, shall we say. And the way we're going to find them is by looking for a planet, an exoplanet, that develops an ozone hole, and then it gets repaired. And then they repair it. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I love this so much. Um, they coin some terms in here. Um, they're proposing this form of galactic anthropology. <laughs> right. Yeah, to detect not only existing life, but also existence of environmental movements. <laughs> so... <laughs> this is just so well written and was I don't know I found it infinitely enjoyable um, <laughs> well and I thought this was an interesting not quite null hypothesis example but they say searching for signs of advanced civilizations destroying themselves and their environment is a rather grim endeavor so we propose instead to search for evidence of extraterrestrial environmentalism exactly I love it <laughs> let's put a positive spin on it right um this is fantastic. So they talk about, you know, our ozone hole and how we did it and how we're trying to fix it, right? Um, <laughs> and I just love it. And so very little research has been done on such an exo-ozone hole, right? So if we're looking for these right here, they say that um, they speculate, and there's a footnote that says wildly. <laughs> that um if they could if we look at exoplanets doing transits and we look at it in certain wavelengths we'll see these ozone holes and if we look at it 30 something times 30 transits we'll tell if the ozone hole has changed well or you know 30 or more and so they propose to do this with the james webb space telescope and its successors because this is such a long mission um, I love it. Has that ever but, been actually proposed in something? <laughs> like, we're going right. to use this thing until it dies, and hopefully we'll just keep using what comes next. <laughs> I mean, that's sort of what happened to Hubble. but <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I love it. The, uh, the, the thing I love the most here is, so in certain IR wavelengths, you know, ozone is not a good transmitter. Uh, it, IR does not shine through it well. So what they've said is, well, if there's an ozone hole, you're going to see a egg-shaped, odd-shaped shadow, if you will, of the planet in this certain wavelength, because you've got infrared coming from whatever sun it's orbiting. And so when the planet transits in front of that, uh, where there's lots of ozone, you wouldn't get good transmission. And when there's little ozone, you would get great transmission. So you would get a non-planet-shaped shadow. Right. And therefore ozone hole and if you look at it long enough you get a planet shaped shadow therefore extraterrestrial environmentalism movements though really they say you know you might be able to just look at the total uh, the total content of the ozone through some other uh, methods because it's very possible that the planet could have an ozone hole that is centered uh, preferentially latitudinally and longitudinally Right. And that the orientation of that planet could mean that that's always tilted away from us when it transits. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Though, I, if you look at a lot of these, and they, they have this, which I love this, of, well, you could observe one thing for a long time, or you could observe a lot of things for a short time and use statistics. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. Um, I do have to say, though, when they're talking about the transit morphology, 
They state, the Earth is largely spherical, and (laughs) the citation says, Eratosthenes, 240 BC. Right. That's a great one. I just... It just gets even better because they start to talk about, like, you know. um, So the observations this paper likely not feasible, uh, but we should test it on ourselves (laughs) by turning something that we have floating around out there back on Earth and see if this works when we see an Earth transit from far away. Right. And I like how they say, so additionally, any observations searching for exo-ozone holes will likely have to be conducted from space. The Earth's atmosphere is not transparent, yet, in parentheses, <laughs> at 9.6 microns because of our own ozone. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, I love this. <laughs> and um, so that's that's a big problem because, remember, ozone blocks this 9.6 micron radiation. Mm-hmm. And because we still have ozone, that means we can't see it. So you have to get outside our atmosphere to make this observation, which is why James Webb would be an important thing for this study. Right, exactly. Oh, man. Um, (laughs) This is... So we talked about why it wouldn't work. This is really great. Um, (laughs) So one of the other reasons, besides where your ozone hole would be, that would confuse this, um, is that high levels of volcanic activity or high levels of thermonuclear warfare on the planet in question. Right. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Um, I love this. It says, given the sensitivity required to detect extrasolar environmental movements, either of these would likely create time variable infrared features that would be easily distinguishable. (laughs) Right. So we could see stuff blowing up and no, we wouldn't want to talk to those people anyway, which is essentially what they say. Well, and yeah, so even in the introduction, they have this sentence about, given that we may wish to avoid interaction with malevolent or carelessly destructive life forms, it would be advantageous to find observable signatures of these traits. Uh, If you haven't read yet the the book series, uh, Three-Body Problem by Chi Chen Liu, it's such a good series and addresses that exact problem in many many pages uh, uh, i think yeah. that whole series was 60 something hours on audible oh my gosh yeah see i started it and i just didn't make it very far i'll give it another go <laughs> it's it's quite excellent uh, i know you keep saying that but it was hard to get through um <laughs> okay i'll give it another try i i just thought this was really funny um their future implications they say um insights into the level of science oh okay here we go the time scale between the initial decrement in ozone which also why i love this i use the word increment all the time i never thought to use the word decrement (laughs) they use it several times in here i'm using it now oh okay so that's like in programming you have the increment and decrement operators right correct yes yeah (laughs) so they use it in this manner which i love so they say the initial decrement in ozone and the eventual return to normalcy could provide insights into the level of scientific funding as well as the scientific literacy of the political leaders on that planet and the the footnote for this says as opposed to on this planet (laughs) and remember regardless of any leanings you may or may not have this was uh, april 2016 uh, right, exactly. And so they point to a Gawker article on Donald Trump declaring war on hairspray. So I just thought this was pretty funny. <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> and then, of course, they thank the local pub and pizza shop. <laughs> As all papers should. <laughs> uh, it was just, it's an interesting thought experiment, right? Because it points out some interesting things. Like, this is feasible if you wanted to. Right. And no, we don't know everything, but that doesn't mean we can't take a stab at this problem. Right. Exactly. Um, I mean, the fact that you're already modifying Drake equation, which is a totally made up experiment <laughs> in its own. Right. You know. <laughs> uh, exactly. Um, yeah, it's really. Uh, I thought it was an interesting thought experiment. It was a very fun read. <laughs> well, if you would like to submit your uh, radiation measurements of exoplanets or contributions to the ozone layer patch. Uh, we would love to hear how you're doing that. Shannon, how can they get a hold of us? Email us, show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. You can find us on Twitter. I'm at Shannon Doolin. John is at geo underscore Lehman. Together we're at don'tpanicgeo. Um, hang out with us on the Slack chat room. Definitely online a lot more these days. Uh, <laughs> we're on the Software Underground, the Don't Panic channel. And if you enjoy our show, you can support us on Patreon. You can do that. Patreon.com slash don't panic geo. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies.